Welcome to the White Coat Life Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Certified Coach Paula White, MD. If you're a physician in academic medicine looking for skills to understand and take control of your experiences, both in work and out, this is a great place to start. Welcome back, everyone. It's good to be doing this again. I am going to start with my dog disclaimer. I have both dogs in here with me today, and I just didn't have any other way to do this. So there are definitely going to be some collars jingling like this, and hopefully not too much WrestleMania. But anyway, we're going to just jump right into today's topic, which is interview season. I tried to time the episode to come out just before we're fully into the thick of things. All right, I know that most of the listeners are in medicine, whether or not they're in academics, but there are some who aren't in medicine. So for all of you, just a little bit of background. The medical education year begins in July, both for medical school and for residency. Some fellowships, which are additional subspecialty training to be done after residency, are now starting in August. But residencies, anyway, they still start in July. For folks who are applying to medical school, it's sort of a rolling process similar to applying to college. But for residency, pretty much all fourth-year medical students in the country are applying at the same time. They start deciding on a medical specialty by the middle or end of third year. Then they start working on their application, their personal statement, obtaining letters of recommendation. They get all that done over the summer and then have all of their applications submitted by early fall with some minor variations for a few specialties that do early match and maybe for military residencies. But by and large, almost all medical students are on the same cycle. After they submit their applications, residency programs send out interview invites. Interviews happen through the fall and early winter. Applicants and programs then submit their rank list, which goes into the big computer algorithm. And then match day is in March. As a medical student, you're most likely going to go through this process once in your life. Yes, there are going to be some who don't match and aren't able to get one of the unfilled spots during the week leading up to match day, so those people will most likely go through it again. And yes, there are many graduating residents who will later go through a similar process for fellowship, but that's on a much smaller scale. So most students and or residents are going to go through their end of it a maximum of twice in their life. On the faculty side, though, this cycle is every year for the rest of your academic career. We may have varying levels of involvement in the process over the course of our careers, but it will have some level of impact every single year. If you don't personally sit on the residency recruitment committee and you don't review applications or participate in interviews, then you are likely one of the people who's picking up a little extra clinical or supervision duties during this time when other members of your department are busy doing the interview things. It might affect your office schedule, your call schedule, your hospital service schedule, you name it. So not surprisingly, the fall becomes a time when a lot of folks in academic medicine start to feel overwhelmed, overextended, and like they're barely keeping their head above water. It might go even deeper if you're a PD or an APD and you start thinking about the fact that you really only have a hot minute every spring between the end of one cycle and the beginning of the next. So since this is something I coach on fairly often, I wanted to offer some better thoughts for some of the most common thought deviations that can be plaguing us. And as always, if you're in a different work setting or a different career altogether, instead of zoning out here and deciding this doesn't apply to you, 
figure out how it does apply. What's the similar experience in your job, and how can you use this information in your own life? So we will start with the biggest and most obvious. Number one, I don't have enough time to get through all of this work. Well, that's an easy one. It's time scarcity. And it sure feels true at times, doesn't it? But this is a terrible thought. As a refresher, most people who are having a thought like this are going to have an emotion like overwhelm, which is going to make them spin their wheels, spend a lot of time worrying about getting everything done, and the result is they waste a lot of time that was available to them and create a situation with limited time. See, that's terrible. It doesn't help you at all. It makes things worse. If your brain starts offering you this thought, how about trying something like this instead? I know how to prioritize to get work done when it needs to be done. Now, if you think you don't know how to prioritize, that is nonsense. Of course you do. You do it every day and you do it well. Prioritization is just triage. If we can do that in the high-stakes environment of clinical medicine, it's a piece of cake to do it in a non-clinical situation like this instead. Okay, number two. I need to make sure I don't miss anything important on someone's application. All right, so that's a type of perfectionism. This is a thought driven by a belief that if you don't look over every single detail of every application— or if you don't ask all the right questions, you might miss the hidden gem, or the opposite, you might accidentally champion for someone with a terrible flaw. So again, this is another terrible thought. Why? Because this type of thought is going to make you feel maybe a little anxious or compulsive, which is going to drive you to be overly focused on details and reading every single word and taking as many notes as you can and doing the types of things that are more likely to make you miss the big picture, which is definitely going to increase the chance of not seeing the applicants for themselves as whole humans, just a bunch of little details. Now, I'm not even going to get into all the systems and solutions you can put in place to use teamwork to divide and conquer. We're just working on your own thoughts. So how about something like this instead? The details I see on the application combined with my interview impression will be enough for me to create an informed opinion. It's not giving yourself permission to skimp and do a shoddy job with your review. It's actually a challenge to yourself to synthesize the information you have rather than just gather a lot of it. Okay, number three. If the applicant pool back when I applied for residency looked the way it does now, I never would have matched. This is an interesting one. So I graduated from residency over 20 years ago, and I've been involved in the recruitment process pretty much ever since then. Actually, longer. I know I participated in residency, too. I actually really remember my intern year because I was pretty enthralled with being on the other side of things, and I remember one of my chiefs accidentally telling me where I had been on the rank list the year before. Anyway, over the decades of doing this, the application process has gotten more and more competitive, and the list of things these students have accomplished, either before or during medical school or both, is sometimes staggering. So it's not uncommon at all these days for interviewers to have a little bit of imposter syndrome when they're reading through applications. For this one, I recommend taking the knock-it-off approach. 
If your brain is offering you a thought like this, feel free to remind it, well, guess what? I did match, and I finished my residency, and I got hired for this job. Clearly, I was and still am good enough. And another thing that's great to remind yourself of if you're starting to wonder if you're even qualified to train someone with a CV like this is, when was the last time a new intern presented a patient to you and knew absolutely everything required to diagnose and manage the patient and or perform any necessary procedures? Never? I thought so. So shut up, brain. You're absolutely qualified for this. Number four. We're not going to match the right applicants because of X, Y, or Z flaws in the process. This one can come in a lot of flavors. It can be, what if we're not showcasing the program in the best way? What if our website sucks compared to other programs? What if the system we have in place isn't giving enough access for candidates who are underrepresented in medicine? What if there are malignant rumors about us on the interview trail? Well, Probably not that one, at least not for some specialties, since for many of us, there's no such thing as an interview trail anymore. For the few youngins out there, in the before times, pre-COVID, residency interviews were all in person, and that was that. There was no other option available. I don't know if any specialties have gone back to fully in person. My own specialty is still fully remote, and I don't think that's changing anytime soon. So back when they were all in person, you'd have these large groups of applicants interviewing on the same day. And so the candidates would be stationed either like in a conference room or a lecture hall or something like that. And they're mingling with each other and maybe with some of the program's residents here and there in the downtime between interviews. So obviously, a lot of comparing notes is going to happen. And thus, the interview trail rumors. I know I even participated in it when I was interviewing, though not intentionally. There was one very big name program that I interviewed at where we didn't see a single resident the entire day, except on the tour, there was one person sleeping in the call room. Now, remember, this was way before work hour restrictions existed. So someone sleeping in the call room in the middle of the day was a pretty normal thing. If you're regularly on duty for 36 hours and you think you might have 15 minutes to catch a nap, you're going to take it. But the only reasons I could think of that we didn't see any residents were either the residents are so overworked that they can't get away from clinical duties even for a minute to come meet the applicants, or they're so miserable that they're just apathetic about recruitment. Now, I knew there must be other less concerning reasons that could have been the case, so I asked around to see if other applicants who had interviewed at that program had the same experience or if I had just seen it on an off day. Innocent questions like that can really snowball. But enough of that digression. Anyone see the problem with worrying, we're not going to match the right people because of a certain flaw? The problem is that it makes you feel apprehensive about your program or about the system, which makes you hyper-focused on what is wrong instead of what is right, which only accentuates those problems and makes them bigger and worse than they were to begin with. And before you start thinking, but wait a minute, if I don't question the things that are flawed, how are we ever going to make it better? Well, of course, we want to fix the things that are broken and improve things that aren't good enough or could be better. But the we'll fail because this is broken mindset doesn't do that. It's problem focused, not solution focused. There are a ton of different better thoughts you can try from a ton of different angles. But here are a couple that I like. How about 
we are going to match the best folks we can, even though the system is flawed. Or we can create our own opportunities for recruitment, even when the system is lacking. I think these ones can be helpful for anyone who worries about being too positive and that that might make them lose sight of problems. So you're still acknowledging that the problems exist, but you're refusing to let them block you from moving forward in the moment. Number five, the last terrible thought you're thinking about interview season that we really need to reroute is going to be anything along the lines of, this process takes over my life every fall. There are a lot of variations on this, but the common theme is that you feel it's something you have to do. Maybe you even feel trapped. So I have great news for you. You don't have to do anything, remember? You always have a choice. Chances are, if this is something you're doing year after year, there's probably a good reason or lots of good reasons that you're choosing to do it. You might have a whole long list of all the reasons you choose to participate, and they might all make you feel warm and fuzzy because they align so well with your professional values. If so, fantastic. Make that list. Put it on your bathroom mirror for the days when you might be feeling just a little bit over it. You might have a reason that maybe doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy, but is still true and important. Like, this is an explicit part of my job responsibilities, and at this particular time, I want to keep this job. Even that's better than I have to, right? I've decided to do this in order to uphold something that's important to me. Nope, no one is making me. I have agency. And what if you think and think and search your soul and can't come up with a single reason why you should choose to continue? Well, that's great news for you, too, because now you have the clarity to say no and to feel good about it. And maybe that's not going to be such great news for your PD, but maybe it isn't all bad. Isn't it better for the program to have a residency recruitment committee full of people who are fully engaged and really want to do this work? I think so. All right, my friends, that is it for today. Thanks for being patient with dog noises in the background. I hope today's episode can help everyone have a happy and successful recruiting season. Thanks for joining me. I will see you back next time. Opinions or views on this podcast or on my website are my own and should not be attributed to my employer.